listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to On the NBA Beat. This is Aaron Fishman. I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Lauren Lee Chen. We have a lot of NBA Finals discussion for you here today. So we'll get right into that. But first, I'd like to implore you listeners, if you like what you hear on our previous episodes, just give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps us out a lot. Just reach more listeners and expand our audience. But without further ado, this Cavaliers-Warriors finals has definitely been an interesting one. A little bit one-sided. But Lauren, it looked like the Cleveland Cavaliers had it under control and were going to take game three at home. And then, oh, detail that anticlimactic ending for us, what you saw from your perspective. Yeah, Aaron. I mean, this was probably the most entertaining game we've seen in the finals for a few years, I I would think. It was Cleveland's best shot, in my mind, at taking a game from these dominant Warriors. They were up six with... A little over three minutes ago, and then the Warriors, as they want to do, just go on an 11-0 run, completely shut down that Cavaliers offense, and snatch that victory from their hands. It was really amazing to see just how they're able to turn it on at the end. Yeah, LeBron James and Kyrie Irving just had spectacular games. They combined for nearly 80 points. LeBron James went for 39 on 15 of 27 shooting, Kyrie Irving, 38 points on 16 of 29. We'll talk more about Kyrie Irving later, I'm sure, but it's just so amazing to me, but I'm no longer surprised at what he does, but the level of difficulty on all his finishes at the basket, just so high. I I mean, you look at his shot chart and you see how close he's shooting to the basket, And so if you never watched Kyrie Irving play, you might get the false impression of all these are high percentage shots. And I guess for him, they are because he's so adept at finishing acrobatically at the rim. But, oh, my God, a lot of these shots, there are three defenders around him and he's so great at using his left hand, too. It's just a joy to see. I mean, I think Kyrie is going to go down as one of the best point guard finishers we've seen. He's definitely one of the best at breaking down his defender with his crossover and his dribble and getting to the hoop that we've seen in a long time. And the other thing is, especially when he's in the pick and roll, he's making it really hard for the Warriors to put either of their main big men, Zaza, Petrulia, or JaVale McGee on the floor just because he's the way he's able to control his body around the rim is just exposing those two guys on defense. So we saw in game three, while he was going on his big run, where it seemed like every single shot he was putting up was going in, they had to 
go to their small lineup more. And when we talked to Andy Liu last week about it, he he said that the Warriors don't necessarily like going to that small lineup. They'll do it if they're forced to. And I think by now, when Kyrie is hitting his shots like this, they were forced to do it. Now that we've praised Kyrie Irving, I want to be a little bit critical. And this is kind of unfair, granted, I'll admit that. But I think that we just have to be realistic. When any team, even a team as talented as the Cavaliers, is facing the mighty Golden State Warriors, these difficult two-pointers, regardless of how many you have, like in Kyrie Irving's case, they're not going to help you outscore a Warriors team that is shooting a ridiculous percentage from three. It's just, it's impossible to compete. I mean, obviously the Cavaliers came so close to winning this game, game three, but I'm looking at the numbers right now and the Warriors shot 16 of 33. That's nearly 49% from three. To their credit, the Cavaliers did make 12 three-pointers, but they attempted 11 more. So they're shooting 27% from three. The Warriors are shooting 48.5% from three. So Kyrie goes 16 for 29 from the field, but 0 for 7 from three. We'll get to Kevin Love in a second. He couldn't really hit a shot to save his life, unfortunately. One of nine from the field, one of seven from three. A lot of those open corner threes. So Kyrie Irving, he's hitting all these tough layups, but against the Warriors, you're trading twos for threes. How can you do that and expect to win? Yeah, and the especially tough thing about that, the stat that you pointed out, all those missed threes for the Cavs is, I think they were, in game three, they were seven for 30 on open threes. They were three of 18 from corner threes. And those corner three misses are just devastating against a team like the Warriors because by standing in the corner, the shooter is obviously behind the play if it leads to a run out. But also those corner threes are generated usually by a guard, usually Kyrie or LeBron, penetrating deep in towards the basket and then kicking it out. So that player is also usually behind the play if they go to transition. So those are really costly if they're missed. And when I think you started to allude to this in your preamble, but when Kyrie's doing his thing where he's going off, going to the hoop and making these ridiculous shots, it is a sight to see and it's amazing to watch. But a lot of the times um, people call Kyrie maybe the best one-on-one player in the NBA right now, but that kind of play sometimes has led to his teammates just standing around the perimeter, not necessarily always ready to receive the ball when he does kick it out. So that could be a factor in why they're missing these wide open shots. Because the Cavaliers during the season were one of the most prolific three-point shooting teams in the NBA. They had the number one offense in the playoffs, largely through those threes too. So, I mean, the Warriors defense is a different monster, but there's something else there I think too I think that's an excellent theory and we can't be sure that how much really that plays into this phenomenon of them not hitting their threes at the level that they did during the regular season and I think also we have to credit the Warriors defense because 
they just all the attention is on their offense and it's prolific it's amazing we haven't seen an offense that can perform to these levels maybe ever that said we can't forget how good defensively they are and i have some stats on that i was looking this up earlier in the um, series and so during the regular season the warriors led the league with a 32.4 opposing three-point percentage in other words opponents shot the lowest percentage against the warriors relative to any other team and the cavaliers for their part were elite at hitting threes at 38.4%. So it was kind of a a matchup of strength against strength when you talk about the Warriors' three-point defense and the Cavaliers' three-point offense. And I think we know who's won that matchup through the first three games. If you don't already know, you haven't been paying attention, it's the Warriors. And the Cavaliers, they've hit some threes this series, but their percentage is low. Through the first two games, non-big three Cavaliers, so guys like J.R. Smith, Kyle Korver, Iman Shumpert, Darren Williams, Richard Jefferson, they were 6 for 28 from three. Wow. Now, J.R. Smith, he showed up in game three in a big way, but then Kevin Love was 1 for 7 from three. So outside of really Kyrie Irving and LeBron James, they aren't hitting their threes. And even Kyrie, as I mentioned earlier, was 0 for 7 from three. So... I think the Warriors are definitely doing something, but you said seven for 30 on open threes in game three? Yeah. Wow. That, yep. That's just not going to cut it. And I mean, you can't blame, I think there's a tendency for people to blame LeBron James for passing to a guy who's ice cold like Kevin Love, but he's a multiple time all-star. That's his role. And I think LeBron James is making the right passes. The man scored 39 points. I don't think that you can blame him for not going for 50 and being down 3 nothing. This team is just that they're that they've run into in the finals is is just historically elite. We talked to Brendan Bowers last week about what the Cavs can do to combat this historically elite as he said Warriors team and the X factors that he pointed to for them to have a chance in this series were one J.R. Smith and J.R. Smith did show up in game three put in 16 points on good shooting and that was a big factor of them having their closest game of the series but the other one which he didn't even list as an X factor because he thought that the performance was so reliable um, reliable exactly was like was Tristan Thompson and he has been completely absent um the Warriors have had used their strategy to completely nullify his impact he has 11 total rebounds in this series wow that would be one completely taking away for him each of the past two years yeah, to put that in perspective, in Game 3 alone, Steph Curry had 13 rebounds. So wow. um, when the Warriors do have their uh, their big lineup out there, I think they are p- putting two uh, 
two rebounders boxing out Tristan Thompson and letting their guards go in for the rebound, which is why you're seeing these big rebound output performances from Steph Curry. But they've come up with a strategy to keep Thompson's impact limited, keep him off the floor, and that's been really hurting the Cavs. I'm glad you brought up those two things. I want to first go back to J.R. Smith for a second. So, yeah, you're right to bring up what Brandon Bauer said. And when Brandon said that, I thought it was a little bit unrealistic because so J.R. Smith, we know that he's capable of just going crazy and um, coming up with 20 points. But then again, up until the finals, he only had two double-digit scoring games. That was game three against Boston and game three against Indiana. Outside of that, not only was he not really scoring much this postseason, but he wasn't even attempting very many shots. Now, an argument can be made that the Cavaliers were 12-1 and up until these finals, so they didn't really need scoring from him as much, and they weren't playing a team close to the level of the Warriors. I mean, the, the Raptors and Celtics had good seasons, but they were nowhere near the world beaters like the Warriors were and are. And so you didn't need as many points to keep up with those teams. And LeBron and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love also, they were just doing so much and it wasn't needed. So maybe you could say, okay, well, J.R. Smith, he's going to step it up. It was weird what we saw from him in the first two games. In game two, he had a little bit of foul trouble getting his fourth foul early in the third. But after that point, he was never even brought back into the game by Tyron Liu. He played a total of 14 minutes in game two. Just a total disappearing act from him. And I think a lot of that was, well, first, maybe he wasn't defensively contributing to the extent that they needed from him. Mm -hmm. Because when he shoots less, they at least need to get defensive contributions from him. And I guess... Lou deemed that they weren't getting that. But right. also, he wasn't shooting very much. And for it to make sense for him to be playing big minutes, he has to be spacing the floor, getting shots. And so if he's not doing that, then maybe Lou would opt for, rather opt to go with Corver or Shumpert or something. Also not really hitting their threes, but at least shooting more than J.R. Smith being more aggressive. Right, I think a lot of that game, um, they they were using they did bring in Shumpert a little bit to uh, guard either Clay or Kevin Durant. So, and as you said, Jr.'s contribution, he he is a worse defender than a, at least Elon Shumpert. So, if he's not making the contribution, at least attempting shots, being a threat to shoot on the outside and opening up the lanes for the other players or the the space for the other Cavs players, then you wonder what his value to the team is, I guess. he. I mean, he's a capable defender, but it's yeah. more than that to stop a player than like Kevin Durant. And by most indications, he's an improved defender from earlier in his career. And so he's been better. But I have a question for you. I'm wondering, so before game two, so, well, first of all, let, let me take a step back. In game one, J.R. Smith played 28 minutes, went one for four from the field, only attempted two three-pointers. 
And uh, this is a guy who's known as a gunner throughout his career. And he just hasn't been taking many shots. I don't know if it's a combination of the Warriors taking that away from him. Guys like Clay Thompson and their lengthy defenders just pushing him off the line. And um, not really he, him not having as many opportunities. And also maybe a little bit of just being less aggressive. But the coaching staff, Ty Lue, told the media that they want him to be more aggressive. He made it known publicly. Usually you keep some of those things in-house. but So he's telling the media that. He's obviously telling J.R. Smith that behind the scenes. Yet J.R. Smith comes out and only attempts one shot in the first half and two for the entire game. Do you have a theory as to why things may have opened up for him in the third game finally? He hit five three-pointers, attempted 10 in 34 minutes. I I mean, I can't speak to his mindset, obviously. Um, (laughs) But it did seem like he was less tentative. He was more willing to shoot it when it came to him. There was a question either before game two or game three of whether Tyron Liu would replace J.R. Smith in the starting lineup with Iman Shumpert. And he gave, Coach Liu gave Smith the vote of confidence. He said he's going to, he's going to roll with the players that have brought them this far. He has the utmost confidence in J.R. Smith. And sometimes that's the type of thing uh, you need to hear from your coach, especially if you're a shooter who's having trouble finding a shot like J.R. Smith may have been. Tristan Thompson, so to get more into that, do you expect that to continue? There was talk, especially after the first two games in the series, and it's still happening now, that the Cavaliers would be better off if they slowed down the pace because although they can run, the Warriors are better than anyone at running. And they just, we saw those missed shots where they, they result in a long rebound and then there's a nice outlet pass and Kevin Durant, he can dunk from half court with those long arms. It's just impossible to stop. There was talk of slowing down the pace. If the Cavaliers are able to slow down the pace, I think that Tristan Thompson would be able to get a lot more playing time. Thus, he'd be able to grab more rebounds and that's an area where he could assert his dominance. In the last two finals, not only just rebounds, but offensive rebounds. Tristan Thompson dominated the glass, and those second-chance points were so invaluable for the Cavaliers. This series, they just haven't been able to get that done, and I think that that is a huge reason why they're down 3-0 and on the brink of elimination. Yeah, the slower pace, it would definitely help a guy like Thompson, the way he plays. To uh, he, he needs the ability to go all out exerting energy every single play. And sometimes when you're just going up and down all the time, it doesn't allow you to do that as a big man and that'll limit his effectiveness. So I do think there's something there for the Cavs to utilize Thompson more effectively. I think they would be better served going to a slower pace, but I mean, it's, it's hard when you play a defense like the Warriors to do that. It's like, it's easier said than done. They're so long. They get into the passing lanes and disrupt your play. So like Kevin Durant and Draymond Green 
are playing all-world level defense. Draymond Green, as always, but Kevin Durant is, has taken his defensive game to another level in this series, I think. So it's it's easier said than done, but I do think they'd be better served by slowing it down a little bit. Yeah, it's way easier said than done. And when they're going with these lineups, like Kevin Durant at the five, I mean, you can't put Tristan Thompson in there. He'll just get destroyed. Um, I think Tyron Lue is not committed to playing Tristan Thompson more. And you can't really blame him completely because of the opposing lineups that these Warriors are trotting out. When Zaza Pachulia is in there, I think that that's perfectly fine and that, that that would work. But game three, Zaza only played 13 and a half minutes. So, I mean, there isn't that much time where the Warriors aren't going small. Right. David West hasn't even been playing that much. In in all three games, I think Zaza and JaVale McGee have combined for less than 20 21 or 22 minutes so they are going to that small lineup much more often than they have so i guess yeah yeah, i guess i want to ask you uh well there are a lot of things that we could talk about but um one of them is kevin durant i think for me at least there are a lot of storylines but just what he's doing en route to his first nba championship is just so impressive. And even though Stephen Curry and others have turned in a really solid first three games, I think he would be the unanimous finals MVP. And I'm excited for him. It's hard to really be that excited for a front-running team that came one game away from winning the championship last year and then added a former MVP in Kevin Durant Yet somehow, I am excited for him. I think peripheral fans somehow forgot, and I don't know how you forget how good a guy like Kevin Durant is, but they forgot, and every game he's reminding them every bit how good he is. Yeah, I I, I do think Kevin Durant is the uh, odds-on favorite for MVP. Uh, just to play de- devil's advocate, I'll make the case for Steph Curry. And part of that is because I think um, people neglect his amazing 2015 finals performance because he didn't win finals MVP. They forget that he put in an outstanding otherworldly type performance. And then people remember the his underperformance in 2016 when he was still nursing an injury. But to me this year, I think Curry is... Uh, as gaudy as the numbers that uh, Kevin Durant has been putting up are, I think Curry is as instrumental, if not more, to the how the Warriors' offense operates. He is also putting up really ridiculous numbers, averaging almost a triple double, twenty nine point, uh, almost twenty nine points, ten rebounds, nine assists on sixty five percent true shooting, which is ridiculous. He's playing really good defense. I won't use the same term that Andy Liu used on our show last week, but really solid <laughs> defense from Curry. Um, but then you look at Kevin Durant, not just on the offensive end, but the defensive end, as we mentioned before. In games two and three, Draymond Green was dealing with foul trouble, so it was up to Kevin Durant to be 
the anchor of that defense, and he really stepped up in ways that we I don't think we've seen before. Game two, five blocks, um, playing five, playing the center for a good chunk of minutes against the a team like the Cavs, who aren't like um, who have bullied the Warriors inside in previous finals. So that was something to see. He's been the anchor of their defense at times. He's locked down on the perimeter. The person he's been asked to guard, be it LeBron James or uh, whoever else. And then his transition, he's unstoppable in transition. And I think the exclamation point is that last game-winning shot that he made oh, in game three that was just three. a yeah that's just the uh the signature shot of the series so far that that takes a lot of guts to take but it worked lebron james just sagged off him too far and when you have a knockdown shooter like kevin durant you just can't do that if i'm not mistaken i think the cavaliers were up by two at that point does that right. seem right yeah it gave them a one-point lead and uh, Kevin Durant, just unafraid, just pulls up and just nails it right in LeBron's face. And so I like the devil's advocate point, though, that you raised because Stephen Curry's numbers through the first three games are phenomenal. He's averaging nearly a triple-double. And uh, so I know in these smaller lineups, it's it's easier a little bit for Stephen Curry to inflate his rebounding total. But still, you have to credit him for getting to those balls, and a lot of offensive rebounds. He had five offensive rebounds just keeping possessions alive in game three. And when you have such a slim margin, every offensive rebound just has such outsized importance. And Curry, so I guess like what what I want to say is even though I think Durant has the edge for finals MVP right now, I think that that is almost besides the point who gets MVP. I think the the huge takeaway is this duo, Durant and Curry, is like we've never seen before. And opposing defenses have no clue whatsoever how to combat it. We've seen so many times where the Cavaliers are so distracted and preoccupied by Curry beyond the three-point line that they let Kevin Durant, former MVP, waltz in for uncontested dunks this is a guy that is one of the best players in the mb in the nba and he's getting open dunks and that would never happen if he wasn't on a team with stephen curry and clay thompson to a lesser extent and i think clay thompson also gets lost in this discussion a little bit he had 16 first quarter points finished with 30 hit six threes which led the warriors curry had five Durant had four after game one and after two other rounds I believe where Clay Thompson wasn't himself without career uh, sorry without Steve Kerr around when um, Mike Brown was leading the team I think that people jumped to the conclusion way too early that Clay Thompson is the forgotten man he's not getting the touches he deserves He's going to leave somewhere else in the offseason. He doesn't want to be a part of this. And the Warriors don't even deserve him. 
or they don't need him. And they needed him in Game 3, and he came through in a big way. And again, kind of like what I was saying about Durant with the casual fan, a lot of analysts and, and fans were forgetting how good Clay Thompson can be. And he's just so important to what they do. And I know that they're just stacked. It's really their entire starting lineup. But I think that we can't forget how good that guy is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to bring it back to the point you were talking about, about Steph Curry's gravity, his ability to draw seemingly every defender yeah, making them pay attention to him. We saw it time and time again, especially in games one and two, where the Warriors would be on a two-on-one or two-on-two fast break with Grant with the ball and then Curry running down the wing and just both defenders or usually actually just J.R. Smith would make a huge jump towards Curry leaving Durant open and he just basically walks in and gets the dunk. And that's something you've never really seen before. It goes against all teaching of basketball fundamentals, but the threat of Curry (laughs) shooting the three on transition is just so daunting that you don't want to let him even see the ball. You're right. You, You have to stop the ball, or at least that's what you're taught as kids. And they are just going to the guy on the three-point line, letting this this big athletic guy just do whatever he wants in the key. And I mean, I guess their rationale is for Stephen Curry, a three-pointer is like a free throw for other guys. But I mean, neither one works for you defensively. So it can happen. But what do you do? You, you don't really have any other option defensively. As we wind down, we should emphasize that Andy Liu, he's called it 4-4-4-4, the perfect 16-0 postseason for the Warriors. Now they're one game away from doing it. And so Andy joked about in in our latest interview with him that he was being arrogant about it and that if he really puts on his analytical hat, he'll say Warriors in five. I predicted Warriors in six or maybe five because I just thought LeBron James is too good, too strong-willed, that he'll just come up with at least a win in the series. Now, that may not happen. What do you think is going to happen here in Game 4? Not that it really matters. I don't think that anyone's expecting a Red Sox-Yankees ALCS (laughs) 3-0 comeback. Warriors are just too good, but... I mean, what do you see happening in game four? The Cavaliers seem to be getting closer every game, but could they just be deflated and just done with this? I don't. I never want to count a LeBron James team out of any game, but it seems to me that game three was probably their best punch that they could give the Warriors. I can't imagine like how deflated it would, how deflating it would be to lose in that fashion, just giving up 11 straight points to end the game and lose that way when it seemed like you had it all the momentum in your favor going into the home stretch. Um, I I would pick this sweep maybe at least 60 to 70%, but again, I never want to count it out a LeBron James team. The Warriors just have so much firepower. They have so much margin for error. And as you mentioned, I mean, 
the Cavaliers game three, you get 77 points combined out of your top two guys, like them shooting 55% between them and you drop the game. That's gotta be gut-wrenching. I, or... I can't even imagine what it would feel like to lose that game. They seem like it, they had it well at hand hand so close to handing the Warriors their first postseason loss. Um, I was going to say though, so I would say maybe, and I know that some people might say this might be a little low, but I would say that the Warriors probably have about a 60% chance of winning game four, but in my gut, and this is another opportunity for us to disagree because we don't do that enough, I think, but also I genuinely just believe in my gut that the Cavaliers are going to surprise a lot of people and win game four. I think that on the other side of the coin um, from what we said before about the possible deflation, I think that the Warriors could just kind of like take their foot off the pedal for a second, just that given that they're up 3-0. And an underrated aspect of this is that it might be more exciting for them to win game five in Oakland, at at home, in front of their home crowd, the same crowd that saw the Cleveland Cavaliers win Game 7 and celebrate on their home court. And I'm not saying, and I think this is ridiculous when people argue this, that the Warriors would want to lose Game 4. Of course they wouldn't. They want to just, I mean, it would be nice to go perfect in the postseason, but more so, you just want to win, get it over with as soon as possible, get the championship under your belt, and uh, you never want to keep a LeBron James-led team in it longer than you need to, but I just have a weird feeling that the Cavaliers are going to take game four, but uh, your, your reasoning, though, with regard to the Cavaliers just putting forth their best effort and game three being probably their best chance of stealing a game. I agree with that. I just, for some reason, I just, I have a feeling that they're going to somehow get game four and just not go quietly into the night, but they have zero chance in this series. And I normally don't say zero or a hundred percent, but they're not going to win this series. I'm confident of that. I have a higher tendency to agree with you about the Cavs taking game four. Uh, were it not for what happened last year, so I don't think the Warriors will leave any opportunity for the Cavs to get that momentum back into their system because they know how quickly that can change a series after what happened last year. Yeah. I, I won't, I won't uh, specifically name it, but you, everybody remembers. <laughs> yeah. So we're pretty much done here, but I just, lastly, I want to talk about, I think a lot of people are complaining about the finals, that it's not that competitive. And I want to push back on that a little bit. There is something to be said about the inevitability of these two teams matching up essentially all year, or you could even argue before the season. So maybe I fell into the trap thinking that it's not so easy for the Cavaliers to flip the switch. I thought their defense just concerned me. I didn't think it would be so easy for the Cavaliers to basically just cakewalk through the Eastern Conference part of the playoffs. I was more confident of the Warriors. Even with 
with how the Spurs started game one, I just didn't think that the Spurs would be able, even if Kawhi Leonard didn't get injured, be able to compete with this mm-hmm. crazy good Warriors team. Um, so the inevitability, I think, does put a damper on things. But I've personally really enjoyed watching these Warriors. I've really enjoyed watching LeBron James, too. It's just unprecedented what he's been doing. And I know it'll happen. It always happens. People overreact. And temporarily, he'll take a hit to his legacy. But I think reasonable basketball-wise people won't fault him for running into this juggernaut of a team. And I don't think they'll judge him too harshly. But... What do you make of both the entertainment value of this final series and just what it means for the NBA? As we talked about to lead off the show, I think Game 3 was one of the most entertaining games we've seen in a long time, in at least recent memory. The level of basketball played by both teams, the momentum changes, Kyrie taking over in the middle of the game, the crushing shot by Kevin Durant at the end that was amazing that's the essentially the pinnacle of basketball enjoyment both teams executing at their peak i i do think it's a little bit of a problem the parity issue that you brought up if 28 teams think that they have essentially no chance of winning the title or probably less than 5% chance let's say of winning the title on in a given year and the other two teams have almost like, let's say, Warriors at the beginning of the season think they have like a 65% chance and the Cavs a 30% chance or something. I don't, I don't know. But I think that's a problem in the health of the league. But I, I don't think it's necessarily an issue that is going to continue like for many, many years. I know Jeff Van Gundy when he was talking about the Warriors, he, he said this team could go to eight or ten straight finals. But we see when these super teams exist, there's always a new challenger to rise up to challenge them. Yes. They often get broken up before people expect. People were talking about the Miami Heat going to, you know, however many straight finals, and they only lasted four, four years. Four years, right. <clears throat> And that that was a little bit earlier than people thought that they would break up. So you never know what could happen. I think it's it's fascinating, yeah. There are so many interesting things about it. So you said a lot of things that I wanted to respond to, try to remember to, to touch on everything. First, I think people are overreacting right now with regard to how long the Warriors are going to be dominant. So they have some things in their favor that are very rare. The youth of their star players is rare. But like you said, the main things with these dominant superstar teams, these dynasties, if you will, are over time, other teams arrive to challenge them. But also just the ego of certain players it just usually isn't sustainable for a long period of time or just the financial concerns. You just can't pay so many stars for a long period of time and be able to do it. They benefited from having a very team-friendly contract for Stephen Curry. That changes now. He's up for free agency. 
Clay Thompson may want to be a superstar elsewhere at some point. I don't know. Not sure about Draymond Green because it's the perfect system for him, I think. But there are so many factors that are just impossible to predict. So I'm very uncomfortable with penciling in any team for the finals for the next five to seven years. I, I just can't do it. I don't, I don't think that would be a responsible thing to do as a basketball analyst. LeBron James is getting older. He's still arguably peak LeBron, as Brendan Bowers can attest to, but he won't be peak LeBron for a ton longer. So, I mean, and also we have teams like the Utah Jazz. They're young and up and coming. The Washington Wizards, the Milwaukee Bucks, and Celtics, Thunder with with Westbrook. They're going to be good for a while if they're able to build around him. Houston Rockets did some big things this year. Clippers, are they're an unknown. But just Kawhi Leonard in San Antonio. Basically, this gets to my next point. So first, I take issue with each of 28 don't believe they have more than a 5% chance of winning a championship. I think teams like the Rockets, Spurs, Clippers... I don't know about the Celtics or some of those teams in the East, but I think that there were a handful of teams, probably not more than five, but those include the Cavaliers and Warriors that felt like they could win a championship this year. And maybe a lot of people would have said, well, they're crazy or that's unrealistic, but I don't think it was such a given all season if things broke the right way or the Cavaliers or the Warriors had a key injury, if the Kevin Durant injury was timed differently than when it was, seemed to be perfect timing for the Warriors in retrospect. So that's one thing. I don't think that it was as much of a given as a lot of people are claiming now. But it still, it was pretty well decided for the most part. But the, the one area where, where I'll push back and I think you'd probably agree with me for the most part on this, on the health of the NBA. There are so many young, exciting players and team-wide storylines that were captivating all season long. Like Giannis Antetokounmpo in his early 20s, just taking his game to new heights we've never seen before. The offensive emergence of Isaiah Thomas superstar status he was good before but now scoring 30 points per game who would have expected that Russell Westbrook and James Harden with these ridiculous triple double outputs and I could go on and on Kawhi Leonard his two-way dominance there were just so many exciting storylines that had nothing to do with the Warriors or the Cavaliers that make this such an exciting league that keep the butts in the seats and keep fans in whatever city they're in going to games that I'm not too concerned. I think that it's exciting this three-year stretch we've seen that the Warriors and Cavaliers keep getting rematches against each other. So I would be concerned definitely if that continued where we don't see new teams in the mix, but other than that, I think that there's just so much to be excited about in the NBA. And while we can definitely try to improve on these issues of parity, and we should, I think that we shouldn't overstate the level of concern because there's so much to be excited about. 
Yeah, like you, I reject the premise that just because your team has a very low or even zero, essentially, chance at making the finals or winning a championship, that means that your season's basically a lost cause and there's no point to watching. Look at the excitement that was in Philadelphia this season when we were watching the first half of the season with Joel Embiid's amazing performances and how engaged that fan base who knowingly they've had like basically nothing to root for in terms of wins for the last three to five seasons and just having that star on their team being able to add Ben Simmons to that next year and Dario Saric emerging they have a glimmer of hope in their eye the same can be said for the Timberwolves watching Carl Anthony Towns's continued development and their big three of Levine, Wiggins, and Towns, giving them hope for the future. There are stories like that all around the league. Devin Booker putting up 70 points in a game. I, I mean, these teams, we know they have no chance at even making the playoffs, essentially, this season, but storylines like that in the NBA still keep us engaged and it gives these cities hope that you know maybe it'll be five in five years in the future, but they they have entertaining things to watch. That's an excellent team to bring up, and just that excitement was wow. That was that was nice to see from a fan base that's been suffering for a long time, and even teams like the Celtics and Wizards, both of those teams took huge steps this year and have very bright futures. Now the Celtics have the number one overall pick after getting the number one seed in the East. I know we're basketball nerds, but there is just so much to be excited about. And with that, I think we can end the episode. It was fun talking with you about this, Lauren. I know we've both been watching the finals closely. Did you want to add anything before we close it out? Nope. That's all just, uh, just another fun time talking basketball with you, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. And thanks for sticking with us, listeners. We went longer than we expected to, but we had a lot of stuff to talk about. So the next time you hear from us, a champion will already be crowned, but we have lots else to move on to. As you guys know, the NBA is year-long and never really takes a break, so the NBA draft is coming up. And then before you know it, there's all kinds of important free agency. So I'll stop talking, and thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.